Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Shane Parrish. He's the founder of Farnham Street, an ex-Canadian intelligence agency operative and an author. Farnham Street is one of my favorite blogs on earth. Shane has been a huge contributor to increasing the popularity of mental models and effective decision-making over the last few years. And today we get to dig into some of his favorite insights. Expect to learn how to pursue growth without feeling insufficient why everyone in Shane's company gets August off work, how to know when your ego is deceiving you, why making a ton of money on Bitcoin doesn't make you a genius, and much more. Shane is a fantastic human. He's shaped my thinking quite profoundly over the last few years, and if this is your first introduction to him, you will really enjoy this. He's a very deep thinker. His insights around making better decisions, living a fulfilled life, really are timeless. And uh, yeah, enjoy this one. Before we get on to any other news, Apple Podcasts recently updated their app and you may be struggling to find this show and many of your others. So do me a favor, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just open your phone, open up the player that's got this podcast on it. There's three dots in the corner. Press that, press go to show. If you are on Apple Podcasts, there will either be a big subscribe button in the middle of the screen or a plus in the top right hand corner and if you are on Spotify it'll just say follow press that and no matter what Spotify or Apple podcasts try to do to ruin their platform you will continue to be delivered this podcast every Monday Thursday and Saturday you will never miss out on episodes as long as you've got that pressed they can try to take our platform but they cannot take our audio plays that's how I'm feeling like William Wallace at the end of Braveheart and now Please welcome the wise and wonderful Shane Parrish. Shane Parrish, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. My pleasure. So I fell in love with a tweet of yours from the other month which said, if you're not obsessed with it, you'll never master it. Being obsessed won't, with something won't ensure mastery, but not being obsessed will ensure you won't master it. What have you been obsessed with this year? I've been obsessed with taking care of my family. I mean, it's COVID, right? So it's obsessed about taking care of all the people in my life. Um, Work-wise, I'm just obsessed with little details, right? Like the font on the website and the Instagram backgrounds and, you know, people, people think that that's a little bit obsessive, but it's part of the craft. It's part of what we do. Uh, writing, I'm trying to get better at. I'm obsessed with getting better at writing and being clear and being succinct and being relatable to people. And it helps my, clarify my thinking, right? Because writing is thinking on the page. And often I discover that through writing that I really don't know what I'm talking about. And that's that's a great feeling in a way. It's, it's bad in a way, but it's sort of like the dawning of wisdom, right? Because, you know, you you can't learn anything if you, you think you already know it. And when you write it down, you, you force yourself to confront the fact that maybe you don't know it as well as you did, especially when you're trying to write it down for an audience that might not have the context or might not be a domain expert in what you're writing about. So you have to simplify and simplify doesn't mean that it's simplistic. It just means that you're using different words that everybody can relate to. So you're now you're translating it side of the domain in which you might have learned something. You're translating it to a more relatable domain for everybody else. And I think that that's so powerful for us to just calibrate our own knowledge 
and to hone our understanding of what we know. How do you avoid getting bogged down in little details? Tiago Forte had a tweet a couple of months ago talking about how the highest leverage people that he knows, most of their work has a rough-edged, half-assed quality to it because perfectionism is a low-leverage activity. How do you avoid restricting the pace at which you ship work by focusing on the minutia? Um, I think I dabble in the minutia all the time, right? So the font, the layout, the paragraph spacing, all of that stuff, I dabble in it. But it's not important to shipping. It doesn't hold back what we're doing because that can always be solved later. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, sometimes you just have to put a time box around things. And it's like, I'm going to give this the best effort I have in this amount of time. And sometimes you don't. And a lot of that comes from circumstance and preparation and a whole bunch of things that you maybe do or do not control, right? Like you're, you're born into life. You're born into a certain country. You get genes. A lot of this you don't control. Your parents you don't control. You're pushed through this, I call it the lucky push, right? Your parents, your socioeconomic status that you grow up with, your friends, your school, and you go off into the world and you have more time to dabble. You have more time to do different things than maybe somebody who wasn't as lucky. But at some point you take control and you take control of your own trajectory. And th that is um, the point where you start making decisions that really impact what's going to happen to you in life. And some people realize that they do and some people don't. And you have to realize what's core and what's not to what you're doing too in your craft, right? If you're focusing or obsessed with the details on something that's not important to what you do, then, you know, that's probably not a productive or high leverage use of time. But if they are part of the craft, you know, writing a sentence, it could take all day to write a sentence, but that's part of the craft of what I, what I do um, when it comes to Farnham Street. And so that those details matter and they matter a lot. And, you can outsource that to other people and you can be hands off about it. But eventually then you just become somebody who's outsourcing everything. And um, maybe that's what you want and you'll scale really well. And but the Internet gives us leverage to begin with. Right. And so the leverage of the Internet is for us to sort of like double the number of readers. It's no additional work for me. Double the number of listeners to your podcast or my podcast. It's no additional work for us. And uh, whether you obsess over the font on your cover art photography. I remember I listened to a podcast on the way here today where you were talking, it took you six months and you woke up in the middle of the night and you discovered the name of the podcast, but you had dabbled for six months. So you're obsessively working on this for six months and then it hit you in the middle of the night. And I thought that, that was like a key, uh, that's a key relatable story to how, how it all actually works. Well, from a user, good avatar for someone that does browse fs.blog, it comes across, I think, the degree of finesse that the site has. It really is beautifully and aesthetically put together. Another thing that I notice, your tagline changes seemingly every other time that I go on, whether it's get yourself together or sort yourself out, mastering the best of what other people have figured out. Like All of these are top-notch taglines, and it's obvious to a user, so at least an observant user, that you are iterating on this stuff. And I think that you're right. When the marginal cost of increasing the size of your audience is essentially zero, the selection effect, which chooses whether or not you are going to go from second in the world to first in the world or from 40th podcast in your country to 39th to 35th, a lot of the time that is going to come down to quality 
as you get towards the top. So I oft, I've been citing the stat a lot recently, which is 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And of the 10% that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So by simply producing 21 podcast episodes, you're in the top 1% of podcasters on the planet, which is a beautiful power law to see. But of all podcasters that have produced 300 episodes or 500 episodes, what's selecting them as they're further through the maturation process? And I actually think that's a really interesting distinction that you're talking about there that's probably missed off. And Twitter, obviously, is not perfect for nuance. But um, Tiago's tweet misses that, which is that as you get towards the peak of your craft, those fine-tuned points, the level of detail and resolution that you see things with perhaps does matter. It also, I think, depends on your particular goals. Like, what is it you're trying to achieve? I mean, I dabble in this stuff just because I like dabbling in it. I like fonts. I like um, changing up the tagline. We don't use any real metrics for uh, any of our page views or anything like that or signups. We just want to be the best that we can be, the best version of ourselves and get better every day about what we're trying to do in the craft. And we're about to redesign the whole website, which will come out in the next sort of like 45 days. But the, the idea there is also selection, right? So we just don't, we don't want the most readers. We just want the best readers. And same as listeners to the podcast. We, we don't really, we're not going for a mainstream podcast. If we were, we'd be releasing an episode every day. And what we're going for is we, we just want a really good audience who loves what we do. And that'll take care of itself. That's really interesting. Really, really interesting point, man, to to counteract the consistency and iteration addiction. Um, As with everything, I think it is a balance. One thing. Well, eventually you become irrelevant, right? So it it, like just just work through this with me. And this is my hypothesis. So I don't know if it's correct or not. But let's say I read an article for the website. It's really popular. So now I know if I write another article like that, it's going to be really popular. Well, if I do this over and over again, and, and, and on a, a weekly basis, it won't make a difference. On a monthly basis, it won't make a difference. But if I do this for years, eventually, I become irrelevant. And I become irrelevant not only in my knowledge and my learning and my development, but I become irrelevant to my audience because it's the same thing rehashed over and over again. And all I'm going for is that immediate dopamine hit of what the audience wants. And I know it's popular because the metrics tell me it's popular. Same as with podcasts, right? Big name guests probably get more downloads than uh, people that nobody's ever heard of before. But if you only do big name guests, then you're not having fun as a host. You're not getting to explore the subjects you want to explore. It becomes a business instead of a craft. And that's fine because uh, you can look at it as a business. That's why I said it depends on your goals and, and what you're trying to achieve. When you say the best that we can be is what you're optimizing for, how are you, what are the ways that you're adjudicating that? Well, A, we have to make a living, right? We got payroll, we got to pay people. So we do need to generate some sort of income off what we do. Um, but we also want to give back to the world. So part of what we're trying to do is equalize opportunity in the world, not outcomes. I don't believe in equal outcomes. I do believe in equal opportunity. And we don't have it. So what we're trying to do is popularize thinking, mental models, um, critical thinking, and sort of um, give people a broader education than what they got in school because we specialize so early. And so the best version of that means it's just increasingly relatable to other people. It means we're creating timeless content. We're talking about timeless things. We've been, I, you know, I've been blogging since 2009 
And honestly, you should be able to go look at any article from 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, and it should still be relevant today. And that's the goal that we have for ourselves. And that's independent of sort of page views. Now, with that said, you know, we also you, we need feedback and the feedback comes from touching people. Um, and by touching them, I mean, interacting with people who read your website, not physically touching them because we're all supposed to be physically distant right now. Uh, but we go to events. We talk to people. We hop on the phone with readers. Uh, we have an engaging learning community where people give us feedback about what we're doing. And touching that medium is really important because if you don't touch the medium, you get out of touch. And so we have to know that what we're doing is relevant for the people that we're trying to do it for. So yes, we're trying to do it for ourselves, but we're also trying to do it for other people. And if we're writing in a way that doesn't resonate with other people, that the examples don't resonate, the um, theories are too far out there, the prescriptions are not uh, applicable, then we're not doing our job in the way that we want to be doing it. And it's not going to help us accomplish our goals. That's an interesting thing to do with anyone that's a creator or has goals online. The map and territory uh, mental model is a perfect example of this, right? That you have a dashboard, which is a rough hewn set of statistics, but it is a proxy for telling you the things that you might actually be optimizing for. Presumably page views must at least in some part be aligned with popularity because the more popular it is, the more people see it. But why is it popular? Is it just racing yeah. to the bottom of the brainstem? Exactly. And then what's that? what's that effect where when a measure seeks to become the measure the outcome itself oh i think i know what you're i don't remember it's not the parkinson it's not parkinson's law people are going to be screaming at me anyway that thing (laughs) but when you optimize for the outcome of the measure as opposed to the actual outcome itself yeah um well that's what we do at work all these kpis right we're optimizing for but if the map is not the territory is a perfect mental model that's exactly what we were talking about in this sense we get so far distant from what we're actually doing and the feedback of it. We're operating based on a map and we're not in touch with the territory. So when the territory changes, we don't know that the territory has changed because it takes a while for the map to update. We do this in organizations. If you run a team and you have, let's say, multiple managers below you, everything gets filtered. We learn this in kindergarten, right? One, one way we learn this is sort of how information gets filtered to us. So in an organization, we distill it into a dashboard. We have metrics. We have all these things. And if you're doing it that way, if you're operating that way, your job as a manager, your job as a leader is to touch, touch the territory on a regular basis. How's the morale with people? Are these still the right metrics? What's behind the scenes with these metrics? Is the goalpost changing? Is the way that we calculate them changing? Are they still the relevant metrics? So your job changes from just sort of managing to being active. And then it becomes, I need to be active touching the territory. In kindergarten, we do the the telephone tag game, right? You sit in a circle. I don't know. We do this in Canada. You sit in a circle. One person says a sentence. You go around the circle. By the time it gets back to the person who started, it sounds nothing like. And everybody just changed one word. Well, that happens in organizations, right? So if you're the CEO of an organization and, and somebody who's really close to the problem, say you work in manufacturing and they're on the floor, they know exactly what the problem is. but And they pass that up. But as that gets passed up layer of layer of management, everybody has their own slight tweak on it, different motivations, different incentives to say something different, and the information gets lost in the process. And that's why it's so important um, that we actually touch the territory. And one way that we've done that or popularized that is sort of management by walking around. I hate that term, but what really goes on with management by walking around is you're getting away from the map and you're touching the territory to make sure the territory still relates to the map. 
And if you think about it that way, it makes all the sense in the world because you're not just walking around to say hi. I remember I used to work with people who did that. They would just walk by and they'd be like, hi. And, you you know, they read this book and they're like, oh, that's management by walking around. He saw all of his employees today and, you know, went back to their office. And but that's not what it means. It means you need to be connected to people, connected to the people you work with, connected to their work. You need to understand it at some level. And if you want to solve problems, you really need to get as close to the problem as possible because nobody understands that problem, at least the individual context of that problem, like the person closest to it. You might have a global context that you can add to it, which might change the solution to it. But you really need to talk to the people who are closest to the problem if you want to solve it. The interesting challenge there online, especially for content creators, is that you're inherently buffered away from the problem. You're away from the map and the territory itself as well, right? Like everything has got distance between you and it. Have you got any advice about how people can improve Well, well not only is there a ton of distance, there's a ton of noise, right? And that becomes hard because now you have to pick the signal from the noise. So who's actually telling me something that matters versus don't? I don't know about you, but I get a negative comment. I'll get a thousand positive comments. I'll get one negative comment. And it's that one negative comment that like, really hits me uh, and I can't let it go and so touching the territory is sort of like okay are there I'll give you a great example of something we messed up uh, we released an audiobook called the great mental models volume one and I did the narration for that and we did it with a studio that had never done narration before and a whole bunch of other things anyway the narration sucked uh, and it's totally on me but when I get the feedback from it the first bit of feedback is sort of like okay well one person said that Now that I'm not going to like it bothers me, but it doesn't carry a lot of weight. But as more and more people and you start to get a cohort of people and it doesn't have to be a large cohort, but it's enough people that for the second volume, we switch narrators, we get a different narrator. Um, So it's sort of like, okay, we got feedback on it. The feedback made sense and it was it wasn't consistent, but it was enough feedback to be um, relevant and statistically large. So, okay, at that point, now the world's telling us something. We have a choice. Do we adapt to what the world is saying or do we continue to believe that um, they're wrong and I'm right and the narration is fine and it's like well no I don't have any ego in this I don't really need to be the narrator there's no reason for me to be the narrator um, and so it's change the narrator right and it's it's that sort of simple but it's really hard when the world gives us feedback like that when the the map or the territory is is changing that to change the map especially if we created the map And that becomes like a really interesting nuance to this is because now not only is the map, if you created the map, it's easy for me to be like, oh, the map's wrong, change it. But if I created the map, it's totally different problem. It's much harder for me to to go back and say, oh, man, this thing I created, I spent maybe thousands of hours on. That's wrong. I got to do it uh, differently and I got to think differently about it. And I think that the phrase that we, we use internally is outcome over ego. And it's about putting the outcome first and your ego second. And so often what we do in organizations and what we do in life is we put our ego first and the outcome second. And a great example of that is sort of knowledge workers where we go to work, we're a knowledge worker, we get paid for knowledge, right? That's inherent in the, the title of what we're doing. So if we're not right, what are we? And that means we're wrong. And we can't be wrong because we're getting paid to be a knowledge worker. So And then what happens is you start distorting reality through the lens of you being right. So it's not about who has the best idea or who gets us to the best outcome. It's about me being right. 
And we never work so hard in life as we do to prove ourselves right. Even when we're wrong, we will go to the ends of the earth to be right. We'll discount evidence. We will ignore other people. We will prove them wrong. We'll get a chip on our shoulder about it. We'll be the I told you so person. We'll be, you know, not our best selves. And so one way to do this and creators get this all the time. Right. So if you think about the creator economy and and sort of, I wouldn't say thought leaders as much, but people who create things for a living and rely on people buying them, it's different, right? You're in a different frame of mind because you're getting constant feedback that sold, that didn't sell. People are telling you, you're getting a lot more nuances along the way. You want to be right, but the world will give you very clear evidence that you are wrong and you have two choices. You won't last long in this business if you don't adapt and you don't. Same as organizations. If you don't adapt to the, the reality as it changes um, or as you learn more about it and it's unchanging, then you're going to be facing a big problem. An additional challenge, which is faced online, are the incentives of bad actors, because as you've identified comment sections can be a pretty ugly place to be and you don't know whether this person's commenting from a place of good faith is there some sort of selection effect that this particular medium or demographic or time of day or content or guest or whatever is selecting for which is skewing the kind of feedback that i'm getting i'm not able to run this through the filters that i would be able to so yes i agree the online content creator has more immediate feedback from the market and they are in some ways closer but in other ways they're further away because yeah, they, they have a lot more noise to sift through great way to put it yeah. you had a tweet as well talking about ego you had a tweet that said don't let the victories go to your head or the defeats go to your heart how can people detect when their ego is serving them and when it's deceiving them uh, when you just get too high on yourself in that sense right like when you're you, you sort of have a win and I had a friend who inspired this. I definitely won't mention their name and hopefully they don't listen to this podcast, but uh, they made a lot of money on Bitcoin and it sort of, you know, it went to their head and by went to their head, it, it, it made them think that they were a great investor. And I think that's going to lose uh, them a lot of money in the future. Shane, instead. there is no way that that person is going to work out who that is because there are about a hundred thousand people just yeah. in America that are, are in that position. Yeah, well, I only have a couple of friends, so in that <laughs> position, so it's it's not it's okay. not hard for them to discern who that is. But uh, I think that you know we just we get overconfident in our abilities and a dose of humility. But it's the same for the opposite, right? Like uh, you're not a bad person, or you know you don't need to give up if you write a tweet and not a thousand people like it, or um, you know that you can't let that affect your drive and your motivation and you also can't get overconfident in your ability if you you need to distinguish between when you got lucky and when you're good and if you're good you can't be complacent because the world won't let you be complacent that's what i mean by letting it get to your head if getting to your head means it affects your drive it affects your um what you do and what you take on then it's a problem. And I think the same on the, the opposite end, right? Your heart is where your drive comes from. And not everything is going to go the way you want it to. I mean, nobody would have predicted last year, but we've all come through this pretty tough year together. And for some people, it's really got to them. It's got to their heart and it's sort of depressing and demotivating. And I, I think that 
it's not, it's trying not to allow that and you control your circumstance or not your circumstances, but you control how you respond to your circumstances and what's happening. And so if you have a good day, that's great. You had a good day. And if you have a bad day, that's great. You had a bad day. And what I try to teach my kids is um, they win or they learn, right? And so if you're in school, you're playing a video game, maybe you lose. It's, what did you learn, right? That's a win. You, you can look at this totally differently. Don't let it affect how you how motivated you are to play or where you go from here. Uh, don't let it affect your heart. Just help it. One of the or things let that, it help you, I guess. So. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how athletes deal with situations. I've been increased. I played sports as a kid throughout all my childhood and I'm a, a big fan of watching sports as well. But only recently have I realized just how beautiful of a environment for high performers it creates. It's bounded. Mm. It's got very easy to quantify objective metrics of success and failure. There are slow um, contributing factors that you can get to in terms of your speed and your stamina and your power and your outputs. And you can run drills, which you then apply. So you can kind of do a dry run of the thing that you're going to do. Me and you haven't done a dress rehearsal of this podcast before we come on here yeah. and then do it. Right. So I'll say this and then you say that. And then, yeah, we'll wait for a bit. So. <laughs> I've just been fascinated by seeing that. And one of the problems, one of the reasons I think that people become disheartened with work is that there is such a myriad of reasons about mm. why this could have gone well, why this could have gone badly, what contributed to my preparation or lack thereof. Was it the sleep last night? Was it the diet? Was it the argument with the missus in the morning? And um, yeah, I think athletes, those that are listening, you have a very, you're blessed with a, a very particular environment within which you can deploy your excellence but it's also super competitive right it's you know you miss a step you might be off the team and and athletes are a great example of not letting victories get to your head or defeats get to your heart um, you know if michael jordan for example playing basketball missed a shot and let that affect his drive um, then he wouldn't be the michael jordan we knew and if he you know, won and it went to his head, he wouldn't have worked as hard in the off season to get back there next year. And, and so like, I think athletes are a pure sort of manifestation of that, but we're, we're, we're knowledge athletes in a lot of ways, right? It's just as competitive, uh, at least if you're a competitive type person and, you know, slight nuances because of leverage can make a huge difference in your ability to not only deliver for the organization, but deliver on you, your goals and, and what you want to get out of life. And I think it's important that we're, we're not complacent. We don't coast and we, we sort of keep moving forward. And what do we need to do that? Well, we can't let everything go to our head and we can't let it affect our drive. So that's where that came from. Do you think it's possible to have a desire to improve that doesn't come from a place of insufficiency? This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. People, many people that want more out of life, I think are doing it from a place of a fear that they're not enough as opposed to uh, a desire to do more. Well, I can only speak uh, in, in my personal circumstances. I, I would word it as pleased but not satisfied. I mean, uh, I'm super happy with uh, my life and where things are. Does that mean that it, it can't be better, that I can't do more for other people, that I can't live a more meaningful, fulfilling life? No, not at all. Do I have to discover what those things are? Yeah, that's part of life. Um, but I don't think for me it comes from a place of insufficiency. And I think, you know, we all have drive for different reasons. Mine is a chip on my shoulder, you know, from a, being a kid and told that I couldn't do anything, being told that I sucked at school and I'd be lucky to 
pass high school and all of those things and drive everybody has their own drive um, and if your drive comes from insufficiency i would sort of encourage people to change that story like let other people become the fuel for your fire but you choose how that fire burns and if it's in insufficiency it's not a i don't think it's a healthy fire and i don't think it's going to burn really long and really hot i think you need to turn that into um a different sort of story that you tell yourself, which is I am enough, I'm enough. And if people don't think I'm enough, then maybe I have the wrong people in my life. And I think that it's really hard to get rid of people in your life because you're scared. Um, but that's a much better choice than living your life like that for the rest of your life where you feel like you're not enough and you feel insufficient. And I bet you, I bet you, if you did research, you go talk, go to an, actually, this would be a great example, like go to, a retirement home or something and, and just volunteer time there and talk to people and I bet you they will all have felt those things at various points in their life but now they'll be able to give you perspective on what they would change what they would do differently and I bet you they delete people from their lives a lot quicker who made them feel that way yeah man it's so strange the way that our formative years when we grow up it, it just embeds into the substrate of who we are right and then you spend you know you've got 10 years of imprinting and then 70 years of deprogramming. It's kind of and then fu you, funny. Yeah, and you don't have perspective, right? You only see sort of like so for in the mental model context of relativity, right? And so the way that we learn relativity, and I'll relate this back to the story in a second, is grade nine physics, you're on a train, you're holding a ball, the train is moving 60 miles an hour, you're holding the ball, how fast is the ball moving? Well, relative to you, the ball's not moving at all. A casual observer, it's moving 60 miles an hour as the train passes by. And is, as you're listening to this, if you're sitting and you're not in a car, you can say, how fast are you moving? And you feel like, I'm not moving at all. Uh, you know, you're stationary, I'm stationary. But if we put ourselves on the sun, we're moving at like 18,000 miles an hour, right? All of a sudden. And it, so this perspective matters. And I think we, we often get caught in our immediate perspective. And we're blind to the, how do we actually put that in perspective of life, perspective of meaning? And so talking to somebody who's older or imagining yourself being older is a great way to get out of your current perspective and put whatever's happening in a greater, broader perspective. You probably don't want to wake up at 90 having lived this life where you feel inefficient or insufficient to other people. You, you that is not the way that you want to live. And you can imagine yourself at 90 and you can really work backwards and see that that's the case. Or you can sort of go talk to somebody who is 90 about this thing and they'll put it in perspective for you in their their way, right? With their wisdom uh, of having lived a much longer life. Starting with the end in mind is such a powerful mental model to do, but it's so difficult to hold on to, man. You get caught up in the urgent, right? The day-to-day, -day, you've got to reply to this email and pick the kids up. Well, you, I don't, you do. And, you know, all the, all the different shit that we've got to do, right? And it's very, very easy, death by a thousand cuts, to slowly be skewed off your trajectory of where you were going, and you can end up doing stuff that in no way contributes to what it is that you want. Yeah, I am... Um, Something that I heard you mention on Rich Roll's show was that you guys take the two months off every every summer. Are you guys yeah. still doing that? Yeah, totally. So uh, things start winding down June first, and uh, they we we go to four day weeks, and then uh, this year we gave August off to everybody uh, in the entire company. And I mean, I take July and most of July and August off. And that helps balance and perspective. But going back to what you said, yeah, you get caught up in the minutia. But the problem is we prioritize the minutia. 
And you should be giving yourself the best hour of the day, either for learning or the most valuable thing that you're contributing to the the company. And how do you do that? Because people always say, well, I don't have time to do that. And it's like, no, you don't have time not to do that. And the way to do it is you book it in your calendar, but you don't book it for tomorrow because you look at your calendar for the next month. Your book's solid. Of course, everybody's book's solid. But you go two months out and all of a sudden you see a 9 a.m. slot on a Monday. Well, now you book every Monday at 9 a.m. and you book a meeting with yourself and then you book Tuesday, Wednesday. And ideally, you get up to five days a week. You just go out as far as you need to do to do this. And then what will happen is you'll wake up in October and the first 90 minutes of every day at work, you know, is your time. It's your time to learn. It's your time to work on the most important thing. It's your time to to sort of make decisions. But the problem is we look at our calendar next week and we're like, there's no way I can do that. And it's, well, of course, like, because your book's solid. And that's, you know, you're making choices too, being book solid. But I would encourage you to go way far out, book it now, make it consistent, make it repeatable. And then you never have to find time. And what ends up happening is all this minutia that doesn't really matter gets crammed into the last hour of the day. And then you're really good at prioritizing in the last hour of the day. You're terrible at the start of the day. At the start of the day, anybody can usurp your time. They send you an email. You go on this wild goose chase. But the last hour of the day, you're like, man, I got to get home. Uh, I got a date or I got to get my kids or I just want to leave the office. And so now it's like, oh, I don't need to do that. And then the other thing that you learn, and this is the lesson I, I sort of, I went to one of my bosses one day and she said, you know, balls bounce for a reason, but most balls won't bounce. And so what's important at 8 a.m., unless it's really an emergency, often by 4 p.m., that problem has already been solved. So this thing, so you're actually going to save a ton of time when you start pushing out a lot of this stuff to the end of the day. Um, and, and the other thing that I've noticed in organizations, and and I, I don't know if this relates to some of your listeners or not, but uh, there's people who who hog your time and by hog it I mean they'll send out a draft presentation and you know it's a shitty draft and they'll be like what do you think of this and you'll spend like an hour fixing it and what they've really done is they've outsourced their job to you and you need to have standards and your standard is uh, you know is this the best you can do and they'll never say yes they'll be like, I'm looking for comments. Well, send it to me when it's the best you can do. And then I'll take a look at it. Right. And that can be your standard. And then people will stop annoying you with that. And I think it's really powerful uh, way to get out of all of this. Cause I, you know, I used to get consumed, but I worked for an intelligence agency, right. Which is in still in many ways, government and you get consumed by this stuff. And it's like, well, that's not why I signed up. That's not what I want to do. None of this is actually productive. How do you structure your days or your weeks? to be productive. Have you got that 90 minutes first thing in the morning? Uh, I have three hours. So from nine to 12, I don't book any meetings. Um, so every morning, every day, with very few exceptions, I know I don't have to find time to do what I want to do. And what I want to do can be uh, spend time with the kids, go for a bike ride. What I want to do can be write a book. What I want to do can be whatever is the most important thing for me in that moment. It could be sleep in, right? But I never have to find the time. And the problem is we're always looking for time for the most important thing for us. And we need to change our, the way that we think about it and give ourselves, we get one life, right? You, you could die tomorrow. I could die tomorrow. Uh, I don't want to live that life knowing that I just got caught up in email. And part of that means, you know, about three years ago, I went through this crisis where I used to answer every email I got. And I was like, it just takes 
like three, four hours a day answering email. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And it's really, you know, at first it's really hard for me because again, staying in touch with the medium, being connected to people. So now I, I read or at least skim every email, but I don't reply. And I really just don't reply to a lot of things, right? Like I'll, I won't reply to group threads at work unless I have something of value to add. And, and my baseline for contributing in meetings, uh, on emails and all of that doesn't start from here, I'm going to share what I know with you. It starts from what's my unique take on this particular problem? Do I have something that you probably won't see? Can I see a blind spot that you're missing? What do I know about this problem that you don't already know? And so often what consumes time at work, two things. One, we're telling people what they already know because we're signaling that we did work. We're signaling that we're a knowledge worker. We're signaling we're smart. But we're effectively just paraphrasing something that everybody already knows. That's a huge waste of time. And we get stuck in this sort of uh, rut where we're just telling people what they already know. So to change that around at your next meeting, instead of saying, what do you think of XYZ? Say, does anybody change the value of signaling to signaling something that not everybody knows? What's your unique view into this problem? And then reward people with that sort of signaling, right? So now you're giving us, you're contributing information to the problem instead of just telling us what we need to know. And if you're saying something that we already know, it's easy to go, oh, we already know that. Like that's established. Or, um, you know, you can you can sort of uh, help people move to this point. And it'll take a couple of weeks for it to work its way through. But it's really effective at gathering information and gathering high quality information. Because what you're really trying to identify is what are our blind spots? And the other thing that consumes people at work is poor decisions. And so we get rushed into this culture where, I think we've all been there. You get this briefing. It's like 70 pages, either a PowerPoint presentation or, you know, a big document with a lot of research. You read the executive summary because you have no time. You read it on the way to the meeting. And then you you signal that you did the work by, you know, paraphrasing the executive summary. Nobody's actually looked at the data. Nobody understands the territory. You've only looked at the map. And then you make a decision based on that. And the problem with that is that decision comes back to bite you, but it doesn't bite you right away. It'll bite you in three to four months. And then the other way that we, you'd think that that would be great feedback for us to make better decisions, but it's not because there's a lot of people between us and the implementation. So now we blame execution. It wasn't the decision we made. It was the execution, right? Because it's so easy to wash our hands of any, absolve ourselves of any responsibility. But in reality, Poor initial decisions consume a ton of time at work. And what we're really doing with a lot of our time is fixing our own mistakes. We don't want to admit it to ourselves, but that could be a communication mistake. It could be a mistake in the decisions you made. It can be a mistake. And then that consumes a ton of our time. Man, I, um, I don't think how much time has been saved and then re-lost over the last year with this switched virtual so all of the meetings that were potentially useful, I saw this amazing meme, I think it was Rory Sutherland that, that shared it, where he said, it's this guy looking and he can't believe it, he's sort of staring into his hands, and he said, all of those meetings really could have just been video calls, and yeah. it's like that's like the synopsis of, of 2020, yeah. 2020, I suppose. And a, a, a lot of those uh, video calls could have been emails, and a lot of those emails could have been texts, and a lot of those texts like shouldn't <laughs> didn't exist. Need, didn't need to be sent, yeah. yeah. Here's, here's another thing that I've been thinking about I wanted to get your thoughts on. 
Is there a point where we should stop focusing on exploring and learning skills that we want to acquire and instead focusing on exploiting the ones that we have? This kind of growth treadmill, people constantly looking for new acquiring. I think this probably ties in a little bit to the place of insufficiency thing. I need more. I need to know more as opposed to just focusing on exploiting and really getting stuck into the work. Two thoughts there. I don't, I think that's a false duality. I don't think it's an either or you should always be learning and you should always be using the knowledge that you learn. I think what you're, you're talking about in a broader sense is we're channel surfing life, right? And in a lot of ways, we're, we have a poverty of commitment because there's so many options. We don't want to commit to any one option because the minute we commit, it locks us down into something and we start to get feedback and maybe we're not good and, you know, we're a beginner and it's hard. So we just, we, we change the channel. Remember when you're a kid and you just like flick, flick, flick. We, we do this with Netflix now, like the endless browsing. You don't actually end up watching things. You know, it's 45 minutes later and you've just sort of previewed all these shows. But in life, uh, what we really value, and I, I was reading about this a, a little bit recently, like what we really value, anybody that we hold up to be um, amazing or do incredible things, they've all committed. They've all gone all, all in on one particular idea, whether it be, you know, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whoever, it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, any athlete, same thing, right? They've gone all in on what they're doing. And so we really value it in other people, but we're scared to commit to something for ourselves. And so we endlessly like channel surf. We're always looking for the new latest hack. We're always looking for the, the new way to do things when, you know, in reality, uh, it's the boring things that actually lead to the outcomes, right? Michael Jordan, the best basketball player in the world. And he's just top of mind because I've been reading about him recently. First, pra uh, first pass that he would practice at every practice was a chess pass well he learned how to do a chess pass when he was like five it is literally the most basic pass in basketball and you have somebody at the pinnacle of their career working on their chess pass and you know that's all in that's commitment to one thing and that comes with consequences it comes with costs and it might mean that we're wrong and i think that's what we're really scared of and so if we endlessly channel surf we're never going to be wrong but we're never going to be right either and I think that that's really interesting from uh, you need to decide how you live your life, not let other people tell you how you live your life. You need to decide what's meaningful for you. You need to decide what you're going to commit to, what's worth committing to and what's not. But if the answer is nothing's worth committing to, then the problem isn't the options available to you. The problem is you. I love that. I was reading The Power of Marginal by Paul Graham. It's quite an old blog posts now okay he says the more successful people become the more heat they get if they screw up or even seem to screw up in this respect as in many others the eminent are prisoners of their own success as your platform grows and fs.blog gets more and more renown do you sense this at all do you have any strategies that avoid becoming too concerned about the success and about what comes with that uh, well, the success isn't really about me. We call, I, I mean, I called it fs.blog for a reason oh, instead Shane, of Shane, Shane Parrish. Shane is great.com. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, definitely not that, right? Because it's not. And then the, our tagline, the one that sticks all the time, is mastering the best of what other people have figured out. And so I don't have the answers. I mean, nothing, I've, I've come up with nothing original in my life. And so I don't, I, <laughs> I think modest, the, the, 
the popularity is for the website. The popularity is for the concept. The popularity is for learning. The popularity isn't uh, unpopular. Uh, and I don't, I don't see it that way. And I mean, I don't, um, I definitely don't think of myself as that way. And, um, you know, I was talking with, uh, my buddy James Clear about this the other day. He, he, he had this wonderful phrase where he's like, I want to be the most well-known person that nobody recognizes. And I thought that that was really interesting, right? So, uh, not being sort of recognized or approached and having a big audience, but well, and, and the question is like, why do you want a big audience? Is it for a big impact or is it because you want a big audience because that's your, your fast car or that's your, your sort of internal ego driving you. And I think, you know, for me, I see Farnham Street as a project that outlives me. And so I'm just a caretaker or curator at this point in time. And there'll be another person behind me uh, who does the same thing under the same brand with the same audience or a new audience. But it just continues because what we're talking about doesn't doesn't change what's valuable learning. We might have to recontextualize some of the lessons for today's day and time, but we'll still be talking about the same issues. And so I don't view the website as like my lifetime. I view it as something that surpasses me, something that lives in infamy and hopefully just goes on forever, right? And But it's not about Shane. It's not about me. It's not about anything that I do. I'm just the temporary steward of this. You're sounding, this a, lo- you're sounding a lot like the Dread Pirate Roberts here. It's like Ross Ulbricht meets, uh, meets Shane Parrish. <laughs> There's a, a quote from my buddy Rob Henderson who says, you want everyone to know your name and no one to know your face. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'll pass that on to James. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think Rory's identified the optimal level of fame as sometimes having someone come up to you in the airport. That was his definition of the optimal level of fame. Well, yeah, I think so. (laughs) But like on the internet, it's different, right? Because now people can attack you and people can make up stories about you and uh, they can you know, try to take you down a peg, uh, even if they don't know you, they've never met you, the stories are false, uh, you know, they can carry their own weight. And I think that, you know, there's a bit of a different world now where, you know, you used to be able to, to sort of, um, that one crazy person, if there, there was one could sort of like yell in a, in an airport or theater and cause a scene, but the number of people impacted are, you know, I don't know, tens and now it's thousands and possibly millions. And I think that the, you know, the world is different now and we haven't quite adjusted to what that means. And we'll have to find some way to do that because we don't want to, we don't want to prevent people um, from sharing their thoughts. And you mentioned Paul Graham's essay. Paul Graham's a great example of somebody who's, uh, you know, profound thinker, great essayist, great writer. And we, we don't want to discourage the next Paul Graham because they don't want Um, And so I think anonymity is going to be a big thing. And I think that that's going to, whether it's enabled by the blockchain or something else, I think that people want to have an identity that's online that might be detached from them as a person. And everybody online just, we already do this when you think about it, because we just show part of ourself online. You don't see my whole life. Um, You see sort of what I'm thinking about. You don't see my time with my kids. You don't see any of it. So we just see one part of people. So if we detach uh, people's identities from their their self and we put them out there as here's one part of me, I'm going to put that out there and maybe it'll be controversial and that'll be good because now we can start playing with ideas a bit more again. Right. We've we've stopped that because if you're um, fairly popular on any platform, you don't want to do anything too controversial. 
And so you might not say what you actually think, but that that in itself is suppressing ideas being shared, suppressing freedom of speech, suppressing other people benefiting from that. You might be wrong and you get feedback that you're wrong, right? But now you don't want to put it out because you're too big. There's too much at risk. There's loss aversion about what you're doing. And I think that that we need to fix that because we want the best ideas. We want them to circulate. We want people to talk freely. And I don't mean that in any political sense. I just mean it in sharing ideas, technology, moving the world forward, equalizing opportunity amongst everybody. So we all start with a level playing field. Not that we end up with a level playing field, but we start with a more level playing field. I'm still undecided about the future of the anonymous creator economy. George Mack, mutual friend, is super bullish on it, adamant that that's going to be the future I appreciate, given your background and how the blog started, that it makes a ton of sense. The one fly in the ointment that I see is that people follow people, they don't follow things traditionally. You know, you think Cristiano Ronaldo has 40 million followers, Real Madrid has 16 million, Elon Musk has double the amount that any of his companies do all added together because we require that. Maybe the anonymity will permit people to get around that. Perhaps we'll get used to the persona, following the persona, not the person. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure. And that'll be... But I, I mean, Farnham Street started as an anonymous blog. Yep, yep. Um, and it would have been a lot quicker to build an audience. I can 100% say that with confidence if I started it under my name. ShaneParishesGreat.com. I'm telling you, that's, that would have been, <laughs> that's the one to do it. Final question, man. Yeah. Eliadze Yukowski tweeted this the other day, and it's amazing. Such a good question. If you were a character in a book... What would your readers be yelling at you to do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what would they be yelling at me to do? Probably be more open about working at an intelligence agency, be more open about <laughs> stories, do more... Do more interviews. Uh, this is what people already yell at me to do. Uh, you know, I keep I keep my profile pretty low key uh, for some of this, and I would say do more, speak more in the podcast because I don't talk a lot in our podcast, and um, I think that that that's what I already get yelled at. So I would assume that that, <laughs> that scale is the uh, scale it up a bit, and you know, um, that's okay because that's not me. That's not what I want to do. So uh, I just need to live a life that in accordance with what I want and what I value and um, doing things just to grow or, or get myself out there more that don't have another purpose that aren't going to help our mission don't really help me. Well, I'm glad that you broke the habit today and uh, joined me fs.blog. Uh, where else should people go to check out your stuff? Uh, at Shane A. Parrish, P-A-R-R-I-S-H on Twitter. And uh, if you just Google Shane Parrish, you'll, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff and yeah, would love for you to follow along and join us on our mission. I love it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate this. <laughs>